0: Welcome to Who Are You? The Life Lessons of Sports with your host Rob Elwood. Join us as we open the door and take an unforgettable journey to unlock the full power of sports on and off the field. Listen to personal stories and reflections from incredible leaders who are sure to move and inspire you. So listen and enjoy another episode of Who Are You? The Life Lessons of Sports.
1: looking back I like I now I get it but at the time I didn't get it but I try to encourage people and I encourage myself prepare for the process you know don't prepare for events because you never know what's going to come up be the best that you can be every day train yourself to the best of your ability every day and then when an opportunity comes up you're much more likely to be prepared to take advantage of that opportunity And because I was just generally a a decent athlete, I wasn't in paddling shape because I didn't know how to paddle, but I was already in good enough shape where I could endure the workouts. And um, so I I carry that philosophy with me to this day where I just honestly prepare for the process daily. And when opportunities come up, I'm more than likely able to take advantage of them.
0: Okay, Who Are You Nation? I am extremely honored to introduce our special guest today, Pam Boatler. Pam, are you ready to join our team and get started? I am. Fantastic. Well, Pam, do us a favor. Please introduce yourself. Let us know what you're up to these days and give a brief introduction uh, about you in general.
1: Well, I am president of Women Can International, which is, that's my other than day job, full-time day job, president of Women Can International, which is a global advocacy voice for equality olympic canoeing so that takes up quite a bit of my time outside of my day job working at the department of defense and i'm still a competitive athlete and try to keep up with the young kids and so that's pretty much my trifecta of fun every day
0: (laughs) well i can already tell that you're a busy busy woman Quick background, just as we get started here, you're on the, the committee and obviously fighting hard from everything I've seen and read to uh, have women's canoe become an Olympic sport in 2020. Is that what I read?
1: Um, well, just a, a minor clarification, Doing yes. canoe kayak is already an Olympic sport. Okay. And the, there are already disciplines of canoe kayak and sprint and slalom in the Olympics, but what's missing are women's events in the canoe Discipline. Okay. So um, it's just, it's, a, it's a little minor correction that get people riled because when they think about adding new sports to the Olympics, this hasn't it, this isn't not adding a new sport. It's just bringing gender equality um, to the equation. So we we were dismissed again for 2016. So so we're 90 years into this exclusion. So now our next hope is 2020. Gotcha. And- yeah, the IOC will make a decision for 2020 in December.
0: Interesting. So it comes down to December. All right, well, we're going to get into that in a little bit because I am fascinated by this whole topic. But before we get started here, you're a professional athlete, competitive athlete, and I'm sure have traveled a lot. What is something that you rely on either as a mantra or a quote, something that you like to go to that would really provide us with a good example of how you've reflected back on your life to date?
1: Well, I think the one quote that, well, there's a million quotes that resonate with me and they, it either resonates with me as an athlete or as an advocate, but there's two words that I've heard for so many years by Les Brown and many others, but it's it's possible. And those are two very powerful words um, that just um, when you start to train your mind and train your body and spirit for whatever you want to do and whoever you want to be if you just start with that as a foundation that that makes a lot easier but there was one more quote that resonates with me um, by Robert F Kennedy from the University of Cape Town South Africa in June 1966 few will have the greatness to bend history itself but each of us can work to change a small portion of events it is from numberless diverse acts of courage and belief that human history is shaped Each time a man stands up for an ideal or acts to improve the lot of others or strikes out against injustice, he sends forth a tiny ripple of hope and crossing each other from a million different centers of energy and daring those ripples build a current which can sweep down the mightiest walls of oppression and resistance.
0: Great quote. Now... You have a drive, I can tell, and I would love to go back to your childhood for a second. You grew up in the D.C. area. We were just speaking about that before we hit the record button here. Can you bring us back right into that 12-year-old zone and let us know what it was like in your family, but also school and sports and athletics back then?
1: (laughs) I haven't thought about my childhood for a while, so you're (laughs) taking me back, post-traumatic stress. (laughs) No, <laughs> yeah, I, I um, kind of grew up, I'm the youngest of four, and there's two boys and, two, and one other girl in my family, so I'm the baby. But I was pretty much a sports buff, sort of outdoor person from as, as early as I can remember. So I was sort of the Beltsville tomboy. Um, but um, I I played basketball nearly every day and loved Typical kids' games, kickball, dodgeball. Uh, I was always very competitive for some reason. I always wanted to (laughs) win. I didn't like losing. Um, But, uh, yeah, I was the only athletic person in my family or even my extended family, so I was a little bit of a black sheep. I didn't quite fit into the Barbie doll mentality. I kind of liked the G.I. Joe when my friends wanted the Barbie dolls. (laughs)
0: nothing wrong with that at all uh at all so so back so you grew up in beltsville which is right outside the dc area correct correct all right and you are you're playing sports nobody else in the family what 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 were your mom and dad doing back if you don't mind me asking back then when you were growing up for for work
1: what they're doing for work. My father was a silk screener by trade and he ended up building the machines that kind of put him out of business. But he was a map maker and worked for a defense contractor. So he was uh, held down the professional job and the family and a, as as a tradesman. And my mom was a sometimes school teacher and off and on. So
0: Got it. Not, okay.
1: Nothing dramatic.
0: Yeah. And did you continue to play sports as you went into high school?
1: Yes. I started sports in since early elementary school in Boys and Girls Club and the Beltsville Boys and Girls Club and played in high school and through college.
0: Oh, okay. What sports did you play in high school?
1: Cross country, basketball, and outdoor track.
0: And moving on to college, uh, <laughs> did you focus on a few or all of those sports?
1: I ran cross-country, played basketball, and our school at the time did not have an outdoor track program, but my senior year, they started a club outdoor track program, and then after I graduated, they uh, elevated to varsity status, so... Um, so I did cross country and basketball throughout and then my last year was outdoor track.
0: So I'm always curious as we make that transition from high school into college of what were some of the deciding factors to attend the school, which I haven't even asked yet, which it is, but to attend the school that you ended up going to and then, and then what was your uh, response? I mean, How did you feel after you got there and, and, and reflecting back on it today?
1: That's actually a great question because I didn't go through the normal route. I was late applying for colleges. I was recruited to run cross-country and play basketball at several colleges and universities starting in my sophomore year. And I was even recruited by the Naval Academy to play basketball and run track. And I finally, my I guess my, sure, later in my senior year, I was visiting a couple of colleges in Pennsylvania. I went to Franklin and Marshall College, which is that they were recruiting me for basketball and cross country. And I visited the school and I'm, I'm a bit of an introvert by nature, and I, I'm not a partyer. so there that we actually visited the college during a normal school day. So I did go <laughs> on planned, Here, everybody, let's come and let's put on a good face. So, I was glad I got a chance to see what the atmosphere was like, and it was very intimidating because it was a very crowded campus, lots of partying going on, loud music, and that was just for me, it was very intimidating, even though their sports programs were outstanding and they were willing to offer me a little bit of financial aid. And so, while I was there, I I had brochures from Elizabethtown College, and that's all I had on them was their brochures. It sounded like a women's college, but because they were 30 minutes away in Lancaster County, we decided to go visit the school, and I did not know anything about their women's basketball program nor their sports program, so it was kind of odd, but we went by the campus, and I, I loved the atmosphere. I loved the open space. People were nice to you when you walked by them. I had a basketball tape, so I met with the coach. She didn't know me. I didn't know her. She told me a little bit about the program, but I didn't really comprehend that I was going to one of the top Division three women's basketball programs in the country. Oh, wow. And previous national champions and numerous Final Four appearances. I, I had no idea what I was getting into. But, but because when I went to the school, I felt at home. I felt comfortable that was the deciding factor. It was really just too easy.
0: Yeah. No, that's a great story. So also, uh, and, and when you, do is the, the coach that you had then, Is the, how long had that coach been there? Do you know?
1: She had been there probably for, I'm guessing 25 years at the time, mm-hmm. maybe. Maybe 20, 20 years. She, she's a long time coach. So she is one of the winningest women's basketball coaches in the country. And Elizabethtown is one of the, all-time winningest basketball programs for any division. Yeah. So like I didn't know this at the
0: time. Yeah, no, that's great. It's, uh, I went to a D3 school as well, and and my, all my roommates were playing basketball, and and of course, uh, the, the woman I dated at the time was a big basketball player in D3, and really enjoyed that experience, and recognized how competitive, of course it is. Uh, it, it, it sounds ridiculous saying it now, but when you're coming out of high school, you you're kind of, huh, what's it like? But that is a great tradition, so there you are, you step into this tradition. I'm guessing that this coach probably knew what she was doing. What was your experience with with her? If you don't mind mentioning her name.
1: Her name is Yanni Kaufman. All right. Um, what is my experience with her? Yeah, just as
0: a player in the team and everything else, if you had oh, to reflect back, I'm sorry.
1: Yeah, I mean, when I came in as a freshman, I mean, she was really encouraging. I was the only, we had six freshmen coming in, and, and five of them had grant nades, aids which are sort of the, the division three version of scholarships. I was a walk-on um, but she she recognized early on that I had a lot of grit, a lot of passion. I was a really strong defensive player and um, just sort of had like a fire and so she recognized that early on and I appreciated that and um, but I really it developed throughout my career um, better Relationships with the, with the assistant coaches. The assistant coaches for E Town were really the they, they they were the people that made things happen and built the rapport with the players. So it's sort of a lesson with leadership that while there a lot of the head coaches get all the credit, very very few times will you hear of the assistant coaches getting. The, the majority of the credit for being the real masterminds and the, the glue behind the team. So I have to give a shout out to Jim Archer and Bob Weary, who believed in me and believed in our team as players. And in 1989, we won the national championship for Division three. Oh, wow. That's magical year. So I, I attest that to, I attribute that to Coach Weary and um, Coach Archer.
0: That's great. No, and that's very honorable for you to do that. And, I, I can also say I was a Division three coach, and we know that Division three coaches, especially the assistants, uh, well, definitely the assistants, you're really in it for the love of the game at that point. It's not definitely not the money or the, a huge long career. Not that I know of, at least. Um, it's always looking for that stepping stone. But that's really nice to hear, and and I'm sure that uh, they would really appreciate hearing that from you. So. That's great. 1989. So national championship. And here you are from high school to a national championship team. And before we go into this adulthood, which is post-college, by the way, (laughs) uh, did you have a job? What what was one of the jobs that you maybe had that you would say was your first job that you worked at that you could remember?
1: (laughs) I'm kind of embarrassed to say that it took me a while to get a job, um, and the fact that I said what year we won the championship, I totally outed myself as how old I am. But I, I think my first job was after college. No, actually, no. Uh, during college, my during my summer of my sophomore year, the federal government at the time was going on a hiring binge uh-huh. for. And and really recruiting college students for summer jobs. And so I got this stuff in the mail and I got to choose whatever government agency I wanted to work for and just fill out an application and I could have a summer job. And I picked the Navy only because I was recruited to play for the Naval Academy and I had this thing about the Naval Academy and so I picked the Navy. And I got a summer job working at the Naval Hospital in Bethesda as a little clerk typist. (laughs) And, but that actually, uh, I was so good at typing and answering the phone and running around the hospital that uh, that actually helped land me jobs later on, and pe- people would take care of me after that. So, but that, that was my first job as a federal
0: employee. That's great. Yeah, they got to you early in the feds, huh? <laughs> they did, summer of
1: 1987.
0: Wow, what a great experience though. I, I'm sure there was a lot of information coming in and out and having those jobs where you're, you're sitting there and managing employees, or sorry, information that's uh, phone calls and maybe customer service or entering data, that's uh, that's that's the big leagues. You start to get up there. A lot of people are relying on that little pieces of information that become big in the, in the archives. So, Oh, that's great. Good for good for you. So would you look back on college before we move on and say total great success, any bumps along the road or just a truly enjoyable experience?
1: Um, college was was difficult, but what gave me you know, what I have my greatest memories are from my sports. Um, cross country and and basketball. My my sophomore year, I, I did not run my freshman year. I actually played soccer my freshman year. I forgot to say that <laughs> it was intramural at the time. But I was I was a part of the very first soccer program at E Town, and um, but after that, I played. I, I ran cross country, and I had taken some time off, and I was sort of burned out from running. But after seeing some of the runners on the field and I started to get the fire back in me to run again. So I came out for the team my sophomore year and um, ended up breaking a few records and being the top women's runner. And um, I did really well and was a regional All-American my sophomore and junior years. And and then my senior year was a little not, not as successful. But um, I just had so many opportunities to excel. And I just really appreciate that. And I played on one of the top women's basketball programs again in the country, so I was just very fortunate to be around some really extraordinary people.
0: Yeah, and and this is not a what-if question, but this is more for listeners out there that are thinking about where to participate and potentially in school and college. Do you think it would have been different a little bit if you'd gone to a D1 school? I mean, I'm hearing these great experiences and playing multiple sports and coming into your own a little bit, but... What do you think? Do you think it would have been different?
1: Absolutely. I was, I was recruited by Division two schools to play basketball, but I decided that I could go to a Division two school. I could maybe start my junior year. We would probably be maybe 500. Or I can go to a Division three school. I can play that and other sports if I chose. Academics was always going to come first. And I could probably play right away, and I could be a part of a, a championship program. What's going to be more fun: being on a 500 team and riding the bench for three years, or going to a school where I feel like I can contribute from the very beginning and and learn what it's really like to win, you know, at a high level? And I chose I chose the latter. That's why I went D three and just the the multiple sports, just the environment. It's completely different at a division three program.
0: No, I really respect what you're saying and, and I I know our listeners are taking it all in, but it's always uh, doesn't always have to be those you see on T V or the schools you've heard of all the time growing up to make an athletic and academic choice to to go elsewhere. So it's really nice to hear it from well-established athletes like yourself, who have gone on and and done incredible things, both on and off—I uh, guess you should say on and off the course in the water—but it's uh, it's nice to hear a D three experience as positive as you're reflecting back on now. Now I got to ask, what was the mascot of your team?
1: The very fierce Blue Jay. Yeah, they
0: can get pretty
1: upset. Yeah, you <laughs> corner them, and your eyes are gone. I, have you tried this? <laughs> Yeah, but when we were playing the Trenton State Lions one year, we're they were in their huddle, and we were in our huddle during a basketball game, and the the Trenton team was saying, we're going to devour the Blue Jays, and we're in our huddle going, let's peck their eyes out. <laughs>
0: there we go. Another great thing about Division Three sports, I love the names. I absolutely love them. Yeah, I, I mean, <laughs> kind of
1: but, hey, you know, Blue Jays are pretty fierce. So for yeah. a lugger, they've got a lot of smunk.
0: They are. They are. Well, I went to Amherst. Where we were the Lord Jeffs and our big rival was Williams, the the men, the Purple Cows. So yeah, it got pretty heated, let me tell you. <laughs> no, somebody would show up without having any idea what was going on. Like, who are these teams? What I have no idea. So I really, really like it. The Blue Jays. Now, where are mom and dad in your family at this point? I know they're not as athletic or in athletics as much, but are they supporters? Are they going, What what is this woman doing? <laughs>
1: I think that's what their mindset was early on. It was more of a, oh, what are you doing, and why do you want to do it, and why do you want to hurt yourself, and isn't that really scary too? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that they support me, but I, but I still get that. Are you okay? Are you going to be, you know, is, isn't that kind of dangerous, kind of thing? So. I think they, they, they're they're very proud of me. You know, my, my dad took pictures of me all through high school, so I have a million photos and scrapbooks, which is kinda cool. So that was his way of I guess standing behind the camera to at least archive some of that funness.
0: That's great. No, that is great. Now you mentioned the word grit earlier, because we're about to transition into your second part of your life here, and and some of what you're doing now. Where did this come from, right? It's it's uh, sounds like loving family, of course, but if there's no, I don't, I'm not gonna say the word support, but if you're kind of self-propelling uh, yourself into these sports, and and then off to college you go. Uh, where where did this come from? Because I can tell it it, it then came out of its shell a little bit more as you especially sit in the position you sit in today. So how do you, how do you think it all started?
1: Um, wow. I feel like I'm in a psychologist. <laughs> Ouch. Um, I think it started very young where, you know, everybody wants to be liked and you always, you know, you want to feel like you're somebody so my way of standing out was, you know, doing sports and hanging out with the boys and being really competitive. And that's, I mean, all I wanted to do was just be good. And I really, really sucked at a lot of stuff. And I hated not being good. And I, I hated fear. And um, so I just had this, I don't, I don't know, there was something inside of me where, I just wanted to make something of myself and I was going to try a million things until I found something that I could do. (laughs)
0: That's great. (laughs) Well, there there you go. So we're graduating. And at this point, have you been in a canoe or kayak before?
1: When I graduated high school or college? College. Yeah. Uh, No, I, I had not.
0: Okay. Okay. So do you mind, this is the part where I'll sit back and listen a little bit. What happens after you graduate and and what is that that road that avenue to when you started to compete at a high level with uh, canoe kayak in the water?
1: Oh wow! It's it's kind of an intro well <laughs> interesting to me maybe not to anybody else but when I when I graduated from college I was still playing pickup basketball I was running road races I was really into running at the time. And when I was working at the Naval Hospital still in Bethesda, and I used to play pickup basketball after work. And I was coaching basketball as well at my high school. I, I had really no athletic direction other than what was immediately in front of me in my local community. And at, at the gym at the Naval Hospital one day playing, working out, I saw a sign posted on the bulletin board for tryouts for the U.S. women's swan boat team to race in Thailand later that year in the first ever world championships to allow women to race. It was like the year of the woman in 1992 in Thailand. And the, the gym director comes up to me and said, oh, you should try out for this team. The coach works here at the hospital. You should talk to him. I said, I, I don't paddle. I have no <laughs> idea. He goes, it doesn't matter. He's looking for athletes and he'll teach you. And I said, okay. Well, they were, they were training in Baltimore at the time. So I met the coach and they were, they were in fact training in Baltimore, but he was putting together this eclectic team of rowers and marathon canoeists and kayakers and triathletes, just a, an amazing group of diverse women. And we, and I just, I fell in love. I saw I was a religion and philosophy major in college, so as a side shoot, the, the idea of going to Thailand, which is a Buddhist country, it, <laughs> it, it <laughs> enamored Mine. me as well. Yep. I was enamored with Eastern religions. so I, I saw a way to travel the world doing sports. It was literally kind of instantaneous, and I knew exactly what I wanted to do, and I was going to, even though I didn't have the money, I was going to make it happen. I just, I just decided it was going to happen and I would figure out a way to do it. And, um, I competed with the women's national team that year. We won a silver medal in the first ever year of the women's world championships. And I was hooked with the dragon boat team after that. And I competed internationally until 96 in dragon boat racing with the national team. And I, I was just hooked. I found a way to travel the world with a lot of really cool women and meet amazing people. And this is international relations at its finest and just experiencing different cultures. And I, I was hooked.
0: That's incredible. So never in a million years going into high school sports or college sports, did you ever think you're going to be flying over to Thailand with a boat <laughs> and a team uh, and competing? No.
1: And that's why I really try, just looking back, I like, I, now I get it, but at the time I didn't get it, but I try to encourage people, and I encourage myself, prepare for the process, yeah. You know, don't prepare for events, because you never know what's going to come up. Be the best that you can be every day, train yourself to the best of your ability every day, and then when an opportunity comes up, you're much more likely to be prepared to take advantage of that opportunity. And because I was just a, generally a, a decent athlete, I wasn't in paddling shape because I didn't know how to paddle, but I was already in good enough shape where i could endure the workouts and um so i i carry that philosophy with me to this day where i just honestly prepare for the process daily and when opportunities come up i'm more than likely able to take advantage of them
0: i think that's great pam it's just gosh i couldn't say any better prepare for the process i used to preach to the kids i used to coach all the time and to say this is it's an experience. The game is an experience. The practice is experience. The season is an experience. Let's not look at it as I have to win the World Series or we have to win the national championship or whatever it might be. The goal is that is a uh, it's a great kind of conversation, but that's not how we're going to get there. <laughs> and I just I love what you just said. Prepare for the process. Now, what was it like going from that? Team environment, and I'm not saying there's not a team environment at all in what what happened after college, but you go from this fantastic traveling on the road team environment in that middle stage for a year, working at Naval Naval Hospital, and then here you are trying out what what was a change? Like what are the differences in dynamics between basketball? And then, and would you call it, I just want to make sure I have it down because I've canoe, kayak, and I wrote down something else here as we were speaking. What, what, what could we say that would encompass all of these sports together? Or do I call them canoe and kayak? I'm sorry. It's canoe and kayak. It's paddle sports. Paddle sports. Okay. So as you get into paddle sports, what are some of the, the similar and different dynamics between your basketball career and then heading into paddle sports?
1: Well, basketball and paddle sports, they're they are very much the same. Um, basketball is a team sport, though individually you have to still um, manage yourself individually within the team. Um, paddle sports are both, it started out with the big team, and then I evolved in 1996 into sprint kayak, where I was doing more individual paddling again, even though I was doing some smaller team boats. Four persons were the most in a team boat. But most of it, it became individual. So I kind of evolved from the big boat stuff down to being by myself in really tippy boats, in really scary water. Um, so it was definitely a mental evolution. Um, so paddle sports is a mixture. Yeah. Uh, and how, how it relates, I take the beauty of team chemistry, you know, a group of people with the same goal, the same mindset, the same commitment and dedication. And when you're in sync physically, mentally, and emotionally, and spiritually, magic can happen. And it happened in basketball, and I continue to this day to want to be a part of, help create that magic in whatever teams I'm on in paddle sports, whether it's a two-person team or a four-person team, or now a six-person team. That's really cool.
0: Now, reflecting back on some of the teammates that you've had, any similar stories where somebody excelled in other sports and then came over into paddle?
1: Many, yeah. I mean, uh, many of the athletes they might have been swimmers or frisbee players, or you know, many athletes are crossover athletes. Um, it, it's a mixture.
0: Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's going back to what you said. Prepare for the process. There's so much out there, and. That's what I'm loving, what I'm hearing from you, to continue playing. It doesn't have to be over at any stage of the game, in my opinion, if you love athletics and competing and sports. and A lot of us step off that college field or high school field and go, okay, well, that's it. And I just don't think it has to be the way. So you are sure testament for that. So there you are, Thailand. Have success. I mean, are you just feeling it at this point? It's, it's like you're in the zone. This is my sport now. I love it. I'm clicking. Things are great. What's the next step? Or are there any challenges?
1: <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, I was scared spitless and all the way did not feel that I belonged. And because I kind of had that inferiority complex, that, that made me work 10 times harder. Okay. Um, and it always made me want to keep improving because I never, I always wanted to be the person that the coach looked at and say, she's in the boat. Um, so I never... I never had that sort of confidence like, you know, Muhammad Ali, you know, I am the greatest and I'll show you how great I am. Um, I had sort of the kind of exact opposite of, oh my God, I still have so much work to do and I'm just going to keep working and um, I am not going to be the weakest link. (laughs) Um, No, I mean, I just, I have a little bit different mindset and, um, but I've evolved over the years from that. And, there's a difference between ego and confidence um, for sure, but um, I just think that's just the I, I had no idea really what I was getting into, but I just knew that I liked how I felt and I liked where the universe was taking me. so I just was I, I allowed myself to be on a on an amazing ride with that.
0: Would you say sports was a huge part of you overcoming this? I mean, I know you mentioned earlier you were a little bit of an introvert going into at least your college years. And now I'm, I'm doubting, just based on our initial conversation, we're about to get into it more, but that you're an advocate. You're, 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 you're In a lot of ways, your job is to speak up. And, and I'm guessing a lot of people wouldn't listen to you now and go, yeah, she, she was an introvert. But I could be wrong. Um, how did sports play a part in this?
1: Sports plays a huge part of that because I'm much better at expressing myself through my physical movements and just through, through my athleticism. That's where I draw most of my comfort. Um, but, I mean, you can still be an introvert. There are plenty of people that can work the room. Um, the, the introversion for me is more where I get my energy from. Um, I don't necessarily like big crowds, but I can be, be in them for a little while, but it will extremely drain me. Um, And in my advocacy work, I do as much as I need to do and research as much as I need to research to be on top of my game and make sure that I'm helping the maximum number of people that I can help. But what's easier about what I do is that a lot of what I do is behind the scenes, kind of like a stealth bomber. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I write a lot and I communicate with people a lot. Um, through social media or through like email and um, more private conversations. I'll occasionally do some speaking engagements, but it allows me to work within my comfort zone and still have an impact. Yeah. And I feel like that's, I'm, I'm still introverted. I just don't, that that's just, I don't get my energy from being around people all the time. Right. Um, so I need time to recover. And, but, um, but I get, tremendous amount of joy feeling like we've made that I've been a part of some amazing progress with women's canoe. We started out when I started paddling, there were two countries with women's canoe and I was the only person in 2000 for the U S but now we have close to 50 countries with, with women's canoe and we're looking at Olympic inclusion all because one person said it's possible back in 1998. So, um, I think I've used my introversion to my advantage and played to my strengths.
0: Well, that's great. Uh, no, it really is. And, and it, there are so many ways to communicate messages. And sometimes it's lead by example. Sometimes it has to be the rah rah person. And other times, there's a whole, whole slew of different ways to communicate.
1: Well, you get you you get people on your on your ship with you, and then sometimes you get people that speak and may have a bigger audience than you do but you enroll them in your dream and now you've got a potentially even bigger voice to actually do more speaking for you. If that makes sense. It
0: totally makes sense. That's great. Ego versus confidence. What does that mean? You said it before, but for the, the listeners out there, how would you describe the difference?
1: Um, you know, there I've been around a lot of athletes who, they will tell you how good they are. And when you talk with them, it's very clear that you're only talking about them (laughs) more monologue. And so, you know, it's sort of an example of, well, enough about me, let's talk about paddling. So it's still in the end, all about them. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, there is a, you know, I, am lucky enough to be around people who just have this amazing sense of confidence. And those people tend to be more giving to other people to build other people up. They're so, assured of themselves in whatever way that they just tend to be more, more giving. And they just, um, I don't know, it's, it's hard to describe, but I don't need to, I don't need to tell people, you know, what I can do or what I can't do. I'd rather just show them, show myself and, um, yeah.
0: Yeah, no, it's, it's a hard one to describe. I, and I, I get it because it's, something that we see all the time and, and sometimes it's misjudged too. You know, you think somebody has a little bit of an egomaniac, especially if it's not in a conversation, but
1: yeah, but in some ways I kind of admire yeah. in, in, in a small way. I kind of admire people like that, like Muhammad Ali. I, you know, you know he, if, if you listen to him, you know, I'll show you how great I am. You know, right. I am the greatest and right. you know, I'm so fast. I turned the light out and was in the bed before the room got dark. <laughs> um, you know that is a sense of bravado where they already know in their head they have already something's already happened they they've already done something extraordinary in their head yeah. and it's just and it hasn't happened yet but now it's just up up to the up to the world to see it after that like it's already happened and then they're in their head and and the bolder people will actually tell the world that like Marion Jones with whom I has fallen in disgrace but you know she <laughs> told the world that she was going to win you know a million gold medals and she went and did it. Um, but it, that takes a, I, I, I wish I had a little bit more of that yeah. um, bravado because that is a part of the game. Is just this complete, unyielding, unwavering belief in yourself of what's possible.
0: Yeah, I, I really I, I like that. I, I occasionally will bring us back to other interviews we had Robert Andrews on, who's down in Texas, and he trains a lot of world class athletes, Olympic athletes, and he. Uh, of course, both training mentally and physically, but mentally, very similar to Muhammad Ali in 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 a way. And I think that what you're alluding to is three years, four years away from an Olympic event. Uh, I mean, he'll literally tell them, "Start wearing the colors. Start, you know, go home and put the sign up. I, I'm, you know, next stop Sochi, whatever it may be, and really put yourself in that zone." And and that's not ego. That is really boosting yourself up to play the role, as you just mentioned, which I believe then can bring you to bigger things. Now, it comes with a lot of hard work, so that's maybe where the ego (laughs) drops off uh, because if you can back it up uh, in a graceful way. But I, I I do like that, playing that role, fulfilling that role, and then becoming. Um, the tops of of your event and I've heard from so many people that it really plays that extra extra little push it gives you that
1: extra little push to get there it's huge because over the last probably two years I have not a lot of people know that I do this so it's a little pan secret Uh Uh, but I do listen to a lot of I've completely destroyed my minutes on my phone for data usage but when I drive long trips I'll listen to YouTube videos of like Les Brown or um, Eric Thomas or you know, Will Smith or just m- in- inspirational people, inspirational athletes, Muhammad Ali, you, know, you name it, people who have done great things and just the uh, I'll listen to, you know, Alan Watts, you know, Training the Mind and I don't, I don't listen to the radio very much anymore and to music because most of it's trash mm-hmm. so I'll listen to that kind of stuff and I feel like I'm almost reprogramming myself And I'll listen to, I'll do some meditation or listen to some um, meditation tapes. And a lot of it's just, you know, I've read books, New Pursuit of Excellence and some James Lair work. And I really do believe in the power of working your mind. And as as I'm an older athlete, it's actually making a significant difference because I honestly believe That and it's a little trade secret that I have. Um, some there are people that do this, but my passwords for my accounts the million that we all have if you make them inspirational messages, something that's meaningful and powerful to you, something that you are, something that you want to be, um, make that your password. So every day you're putting something in and you're subliminal, you're subliminally to transforming your subconscious. Yep. to transform. Yes, that's
0: great, really. It is it's so great and it's uh <laughs> Pam, I love it. I really love it. And these things can't uh you got to pick up on this from mentors, from listening to others and then once you're there you see it because it's just so often and and we're around you're around professional athletes I've seen plenty of professional athletes talk to fresh athletes. Look, there's not a huge differentiator between your athletic talents and others that are around you, especially when you start to rise to the top. And there's a lot of people out there that could step onto a field that can step onto a court that can go into the water. Do they have the mental discipline though to maintain it? And that's what it comes down to. And, that's great. It's great to hear. Yeah, I, I agree. Get rid of the music. It's okay sometimes to throw it on, get excited, get pumped up, but educate the mind, put yourself in that mindset and great things will happen. I really, really believe that.
1: You, you listen to stuff that has music in the background, which is <laughs> inspirational. <Yeah. laughs>
0: it's so true. Yeah. so true. So walk us through. So two thousand. So Thailand was 2000, correct? Thailand was 1992. Oh, wow. That was 1992. So catch us up to speed as you are, and again, please feel free to share stories with us. But as you sit here today and as an advocate for the, you know, the, the vote that's coming up and really speaking out loud, and, and obviously that comes through the sport and competing and understanding and your uh, ability to, quote unquote, lobby, how, what was, what's the journey? You go to Thailand. That's your first event really big event in 92 now now what starts to happen how do you fall in love with this sport to the point where it's it's basically a second job for you
1: uh, well i mean I, I fell in love with from, from the beginning um during the during my few years of dragon boat racing as our team tra- transferred from baltimore down to the washington canoe club in in washington dc georgetown um, that's what was my first exposure that was 1993 we moved down there so I was still part of these big team sports but as as our team evolved we started to have fewer and fewer really really good athletes that were actually dedicating their lives to the sport um, many of them are making it more recreational so that was a little bit different disappointing for me because when you're relying there's twenty people in a dragon boat so that's a lot of people to depend on to move a two thousand pound boat so it actually became sort of a physical and emotional drag by 1995, and some some t- some people at the Washington Canoe Club were were trying to recruit me to come over to the Olympic sports side to, to kayak.ing And so finally, I switched to kayak in 1996, and that got me into more individual boats and two person and four person boats. No more twenty person boats. <laughs> So, uh, and I, I'm glad I made that transition and, um, and that just started my evolution. I did sprint kayak through 1999 and then in 2000 was when I made the conversion to canoe, the high kneel stuff. Okay.
0: So, wow, I didn't know 20 people. I mean, it's hard enough to get people to show up in fours and sixes and eights. You got to get 20 people out there practicing. That's incredible.
1: Yeah. 20 people and you need them to all be in shape and paddle at the same time, you know, yeah. move Two thousand pound canoes. It was quite an extraordinary time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <Still paying> effort.
0: <laughs> yeah, I guess it self selects itself out when you're at that stage to uh, move on. Maybe as you had, but but uh, I'm also hearing that you respected your time in the dragon boat. So now you're you're on this track for for I guess you'd say the
1: Olympics. Correct. Uh, well, I did. I have I had grandiose dreams when I first got into the sport because our, our canoe club actually helped get canoe kayak into the Olympics in 1924. And so when you go to a club like this, of course, oh, the Olympic trials are in 1990. You know, they're in, two, well, the next one would have been 2000. So I had these goals of I wanted to go to the Olympic trials. I, w- I knew I wouldn't make a team, but I just wanted to go to the trials. But I just, I wasn't, I had, re- I struggled with balance a lot. And they were really, really tippy boats. So, you know, I did as much as I could. I did pretty well in kayak. I did better in team boats than individually and won a few medals at nationals and two-person and four-person kayaks. Um, but... uh no, I can't remember the question. <laughs> no, that's
0: sorry. No, I was just curious on on how the transition was, and, and of course, um, where where you were heading with with the sport. But it 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 sounds as though that you are uh, really what I'm ultimately getting to, Pam. Is I'm trying I'm trying to figure out where this trigger was to say, you know what, I am uh, through your success in the water, and then of course out of the water doing some lobbying of. I am really on the track. Well, we were talking about the Olympics, right? And I'm yeah. on the track to either make the team or continue to work so hard uh, because of the love of the sport to make sure that this is an equal sport
1: to yeah. the men's. Yeah, so the, the transition for me and the trigger, the aha moment. Yes. In 1998, there was a woman. I was still kayaking at the time and there was a woman from Canada named Sheila Kiper who came to our club and paddled. She's a canoeist. Now, at our canoe club and in the United States and in the world at this time, women do not do canoes. It's sort of about as odd as finding a woman playing U.S. football. Mm-hmm. Um, so watching this woman, it was sort of power and grace personified. And Canada was the first nation to have women 's canoe with their national championships, and she at the time Toronto was bidding against Beijing at the time i didn 't understand this all at the time, but that 's what was going on in the backdrop, but she was part of the campaign with the Toronto organizing committee to get women 's canoe in the two thousand and eight Olympics as part of their bid so she had she was on this big poster called Power and Grace for two thousand and eight and um, I was just I was mesmerized by her, but I wasn't quite ready to get into the canoe yet. 1999, I dabbled in canoe a few times over about a six-week period during the summer, but it was so hard and so exhausting, it was taking away from my kayak training. So I didn't do it for very long. But there was something about it that was that was that was intriguing, and there was something about her and her vision for for the Olympics that was intriguing. And in 2000 she invited me to, so actually I did a race in 1999 um, after about six weeks of playing around in the canoe. And this was actually the turning point race. And there were three women that participated in my canoe club race on the Potomac River. And it was the first time ever that women's canoe was put on a regatta schedule at the Washington Canoe Club or any place else in the U.S. or in the world other than Canada. And of course, I didn't know that at the time myself, but this is all part of on the process. So, one of the women in the race was my kayaking nemesis, Kelly. Now, (laughs) if you you grew up watching the Brady Bunch and you knew Marsha, Jan, and Cindy were the girls. So, Marsha was the oldest and the perfect one. And Jan was sort of always looking at Marsha and being upset because Marsha was perfect. So, Kelly is like Marsha. Okay? (laughs) So, instead of Marsha, 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 it's Kelly, Kelly, Kelly. So, (laughs) Everybody knew that Kelly was going to win because her boyfriend was a canoeist. And I had no clue. I was just sort of bumbling around in the boat. Well, here we are lining up together for the first time and everybody's cheering for Kelly. And it's a 500-meter race, so it's about a three-minute race, less than three-minute race, less than a half a mile. And, um, and the, the gun goes off, and I'm in an outside lane, sort of the middle of the river, And my head is down. I'm not even looking up. I'm looking down. And about halfway through the race, I look over to my left, and I don't see anybody. So I'm kind of thinking, oh, she's probably finished having lunch. Okay, (laughs) you suck. Just keep paddling. So I keep paddling, and about 100 meters before the finish line, I looked over again, and then I kind kind of glanced back, and Kelly was really far behind me. And I started to mildly freak out. That Kelly was behind me, and the other woman wasn't even in sight. So, so I'm continuing to paddle, and by this point, I could hear there were a lot of people on the shore, and they're cheering and yelling. and I could hear sa- people saying, "Oh my God, Pam's beating Kelly!" Oh my God! Oh my God! People are freaking out, and they're cheering for me, and I, I started to freak out because people were cheering for me. <laughs> and of course, my then boyfriend was in a chase boat beyond the finish line. And so I, I looked up. I got to about five meters before the finish line, and I looked up, and I saw this big orange buoy. So I saw the finish line, and everybody's cheering, and Kelly's behind me, and none of that was supposed to happen. And about three strokes before the finish line, I flipped. Oh I, fell boat. I fell in the water um, oh face first. And I heard, all I heard from the shore was this collective moan <laughs> and, it was, and it was in the moment. And I, I, as I'm in the water and I hadn't crossed the finish line and I'm sort of feeling dejected but not really feeling dejected, but I'm just sort of watching Kelly paddle past me across the finish line and I watch the other person pass the finish line. And then my then boyfriend who was in the motorboat drives up next to me and pulls me out of the water and calls me a bonehead. Oh. And, and that's why he's not my boyfriend anymore. Yeah, I was going to say. Um, yeah, so <laughs> – but what was really weird is that <laughs> even though even though I I completely embarrassed myself, I didn't even finish. I flipped at the finish line. For the first time, I did something that I didn't think I could do. My goals at the start of that race were stay up, go straight, finish. I stayed up I well, I I <laughs> I went straight sort of I didn't I didn't finish and I didn't stay up. But The fact that I was kicking Kelly's butt royally, I did something I didn't know I could do. And I had this weird sensation where I felt like I belonged in in the canoe. I didn't belong in the kayak. And I felt like, to be really honest with you, in that moment, that I could be a part of something bigger than myself by being a part of canoe because nobody else did it. It wasn't something that girls did. Boys did canoe. And it was such a strong emphasis against women in canoe at the time that there was even this myth around the world and even in the U.S. that it will damage a woman's reproductive organs causing infertility and it will cause lopsided breasts and all that good stuff. (laughs) What? So I had this, honestly, it was literally in that moment I felt like I found my purpose and it was not only to do canoe even though I completely sucked but that I could be a part of something bigger than myself and that this was possible to be in the Olympics for women when at the, at the time there was, you know, realistically, no possibility <laughs> whatsoever. Right. right. But I bought into that dream that was planted, the seeds that were planted by Sheila Kuyper when she visited the club.
0: Wow. What a powerful story, and I mean, the end is just, as you mentioned before, part of the process, so what, you fall out, no big deal, it's not the end-all, be-all, but what a great
1: feeling, and I can hear it in your voice. Sure, I had, I had ultimate, I felt like I had ultimate victory in failure. Yeah. A very embarrassing failure. Right, sure, no,
0: I, I, I understand, and it's uh, never fun in the moment, but looking back, what a, what a, what a fascinating story, and a propeller, definitely a propeller. To, to move forward. Wow, that's amazing. So where are we today, Pam? It, it, you know, you'd mentioned in the beginning, and we're trying to get this one discipline, if I'm saying the, the terminology correct, into the Olympics, and just got passed over. Another decision coming up. Uh, I don't know. I, I Maybe I'm part of the wrong side here. I mean, I always think, well, geez, it's 2014. And, you know, what, what's the, like, I don't get it. Why, why won't this get passed that, that we can have this discipline? What, what is the reasoning behind all this.
1: It's that's the $64,000 question and um, you know they got the gender equity memo many many times over over the over decades and it's been 90 years and here year, right? since 1924. Jeez. And based on my math that's 90 years. Yeah. counting. So I there's just it's we're just one of the many one of the last bastions of of Exclusion for women, and it's it's the same mentality that went into keeping women from running longer than 800 meters. It kept women out of rowing. It kept kept women out of wrestling. It kept women out of numerous Olympic sports. And 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 women had to fight. You know, uh, Rusty um, Kani, Kaniogie was one of my heroes, and she helped get women's judo into the Olympics. And um, and so. Every Olympics, there's another barrier to get through. And women's boxing was in the Olympics for the first time in 2012. In 2014, women's ski jumping made its debut in the Olympics, and that was extraordinary to watch. And I was a part of that sort of behind the scenes with them over the last five years. And I've drawn inspiration from you know Catherine Switzer. I met her just you know through email and phone. Uh, probably eight years ago. And I was so inspired by her. And she was so encouraging with me. You know, she was the first female to officially enter the Boston Marathon in 1967, even though Roberta Gibb ran it in 1966. But Catherine Switzer was so encouraging of me. And the and it's the same story, just a different sport. So I had to take lessons from each of these men and women who fought for equality in in these other areas and and I'm just applying trying to apply those strategies to to for women's canoe and honestly my strategy is yes I have had to fight and and do things that make me feel uncomfortable or to you know battle the enemy but in but in other ways I have uh, I feel like we've succeeded by taking stories from Countries around the world and just making these girls and women bigger than life, yeah. and just showing what's possible. Yeah. And it's 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 blossomed from two countries in 2000 to nearly 50 in 2014. We had I started my Facebook page "Vote Yes for Women's Canoe" in 2010. My goal is still 10,000 fans. We've got 6,300 fans now. We had a Change.org petition in 2012. We got nearly 7,000 signatures, which is pretty extraordinary for such a small, obscure sport. obscure sport, at least for the U.S. It's not obscure in Europe. Um, So we've been able to do things, but honestly, it all goes back to it's possible.
0: Yep. Yeah. First of all, have you threatened the Blue Jay on them yet?
1: No, but that's that's my nuclear missile, so I'm holding out. (laughs) If that vote does not come in our favor in December, you better be watching for a blue jay completely destroying Facebook.
0: I can't wait. Sorry, that just came to my mind here. Now, now, what do you going through the history a little bit? When's the last time do you know that the men had to fight for something to get into the Olympics? Do you know?
1: Wow, men are still fighting for synchronized swimming. Okay. Um, I'm not sure if that's going to happen, but they're fighting. They that's gender equality right there. Um men don't have rhythmic gymnastics, but I'm not sure if there's a strong lobby. Um I uh, know. It's men don't really have to. It's just sort of a given okay. that men do something first. Right. Now, when you when they deny you, do they is there a Is there
0: a reason? I know you said a 64,000 question, but I mean, is there, it's like, no, we don't have the funds or no, that's not the venue or no, there's not enough countries. I mean, all of
1: the above, absolutely all of the above. They'll say there's, there's not enough money. There's not enough of you. There's not enough people. There's not enough athletes. There's not enough countries. There is not enough time on the schedule. It's too expensive. Um, so, so we need to develop you. Well, development is code for delay. Yeah. And they, it's, it's, that will happen all the time. And what happens is they'll say, well, there's not enough of you. Well, why? And they'll never go to the next step. Well, why aren't there enough of you? That's because there aren't any events Mm -hmm. put out there. There's no field of dreams to give anyone the incentive to get a girl into a canoe or an incentive to get a, a girl to get into a canoe. Many women got into canoes just because they wanted to when they did not have any opportunities. Yeah. I'm so inspired by them because they were doing it for the love of it, and um, so so build it and they will come. And Field of Our Dream or, or the um, A League of Our Own is like one of my favorite movies. Oh yeah. time. But but that's what we had to do: is force federations to. You have to offer events. You have to at every level: nat- local, national, and international. And the minute we saw events, then you started to slowly see more. But because it's still not an Olympic event, we still have resistance. Yeah. And still, you won't see the money stream. There's money stream and Olympic status. There is some money in Europe and South America um, for world championships level events. But we're still at a, at a disadvantage at the world championship because we only have two events in sprint, one in slalom when the men have eight, mm. and everybody else has eight. So it, it's, it's still extremely unbalanced, um, but we're still, we were inching up to about 29 countries that have competed at the international level now, which is good, even though there's 50 countries that should be there. Right. But we still have national federations that are, that don't believe in women's canoe. They will outright have discriminatory selection procedures that, that women still have to race against men or they make the standards so extreme that there's no way that the women can meet the standard because they don't have coaching, they don't have support. So we're still overcoming a lot at the grassroots level, but we just, we just keep the momentum. And now, you know, 2020 is on the horizon. We were dismissed for 2016, which should not have happened. But the International Canoe Federation would have come out even in 2012 and say there are only a few countries developing. And that's why we did not submit you for 2016 inclusion. Well, that was one of our myths on our myths facts page. Um, they, I literally took their quote of there are only a few countries and I presented the facts right. of over 40 countries at the time.
0: It's pretty bizarre, actually. <laughs> I hear about it. it you know? It's
1: actually really pathetic. And yeah. I think the international Olympic committee has the in the earlier last year. I don't know if you remember the brouhaha over wrestling getting pulled from the olympic program
0: okay a little bit
1: there were five sports that were on the chopping block for the olympics for 2020 and wrestling was wrestling got pulled but canoe kayak was on that chopping block and part of the reason wrestling was on the chopping block and canoe kayak is over gender equity issues and there were some other issues as well, but gender equity is top on the slate, so wrestling was pulled, and then they got reinstated, but that was a big wake up call I think for the international canoe federation is you 've got to get your act together yeah. on all fronts, not just on the athletic field but women in leadership positions, so because you, you still have a field of men making all of these decisions
0: yeah yeah no that 's unfortunate First of all, I love your drive and your commitment that 's just uh you know, again, part of the process and, and do, I don't need to tell you, but do not stop that. it's inspiring. And, and as you said, the, you know, if we build it, of course, I mean, what sport, <laughs> what sport didn't just start and then people started gravitating towards it because we built more basketball courts or more soccer fields or more uh, swimming pools, whatever it may be. I mean, we have to allow the platform. I'm not, uh, I'm not competing in this event. I'm not on the Olympic committee, but it just sort of, if you peel back all the layers, it seems like kind of just simple addition here, <laughs> simple it, it, math,
1: simple addition. And that's been one of the hardest barriers to overcome is that it's just, it's too simple. Right. Uh, yeah.
0: Right. Well, what can, what can we do to help is Can anybody do anything to help? Is it as simple as it's the Olympic committee.
1: Um, honestly are uh, we, well the the bigger things is we have encouraged people to write to their International Olympic Committee members to um, and that they can get those off of the International Olympic Committee website. But really the easiest thing to do is make us a part of your conversation when it comes to gender equality in sports. And that was probably my probably one of my number one goals that, that could have the most impact is if I could expand the expand how often our that we were even mentioned in conversation and to have more powerful people including us in their conversation like the Women's Sports Foundation Nancy Hogshead Makar you know Olympic medalist and having international figures mention us Catherine Switzer keeping us in her conversation newspapers occasionally writing about it are uh, sharing our Facebook page Um, honestly that it's as simple as that is keeping us as a part of the conversation and the way the universe works honestly I I just feel that there's somebody somewhere that has an ability to make a difference they may have a connection of some sort and because that's just the way it's that's the way things have worked over time just this through word of mouth or the internet people become interested and intrigued Uh, you know an article might be written um, that's in it, it, the information flow and education and awareness is yeah. probably the biggest hurdle and our biggest opportunity. And, and that is the easiest way to shame sports organizations into getting their act together. Is yep. you make, you make people say, this is ridiculous. Men and women will say that this is ridiculous. Yeah. Why, why wouldn't
0: there be just a, a men's committee and a women's committee for their respective gender sports? Why is it? I don't I don't get why <laughs> there would be well, one I, committee over both.
1: Um, I don't think that there needs to be. Okay. I mean, I the best people for the job. And I I'll be really honest with you that even though we have women in leadership positions in our sport, we've had men do much more for us than those women. We've actually been limited by those women. So yeah, I'm a fan of getting more women in the leadership roles, but there's some pretty crappy women that have come along, excuse my language, oh, uh, but we've been far better served at times by men who have daughters and wives and mothers who wanted opportunities, and they heard very loudly from them that they didn't like not having them. So those dads and husbands and brothers um, have, have really stood up for us, and we so appreciate that.
0: That's great. We need to get you on a TED Talk, Pam. <laughs> <laughs> I'm serious. I mean, hey, no offense to TED Talks or people who have been out there, but this is uh, this is something that needs to – I mean, you're doing what you're doing right now. I'm not taking away from that. I'm not saying it's the end-all, be-all, but I, I, it's just a nice platform to be on. Um Anyway, I think you're you're speaking the truth here and have a lot of great information. Well, Pam, listen, I uh, I'm gonna ask you a couple last questions as I do with most people because I think it's very inspiring, but I really appreciate your your drive. and I know, I know. I, just have a, I have a gut feeling. I think we're going to be all right moving forward here. I wish it was earlier as well, but I'm on your side, and and I really, truly believe that in, in 2020, which I know sounds so far away, that this will be an Olympic sport, and I am, or the discipline will be. So I'm really, really excited for that, you know, something to look forward to. Uh, Pam, a book, you've mentioned a movie, a league of their own. I'm not going to hold you to that if you want to switch it, but how about a book and a movie, something you can recommend to us from your, uh, your daily life that you'd like to share?
1: Well, I mean, there's several movies that impacted me, but they're, you know, sports movies. I love the movie about Roger Bannister, four minutes. And, you know, here's someone that's, he, he just personified it's possible. And, um, and, did whatever he needed to do to make breaking four minutes. Is you know of course it's the men's movie, but I'm just I'm just I've watched it a million times, and just how meticulously he worked to achieve that goal. And um, and there's another Shackleton's The Endurance. It's not a sports movie, but boy, is that a movie about just incredible, extraordinary circumstances to endure life life life-threatening um, but the last movie that actually hasn't come out yet that I hope you've read the book and then I hope you'll see the movie is called Unbroken yes by Louis Zamperini. Zamperini awesome. and um, I really can't wait to the movie and he's a, he was an Olympic runner but more so he, he was a uh, Air Force um, Army veteran and but he just personified he was tortured in World War II survived 47 days at sea in a raft with two other two other gentlemen, and um, his post World War II story is even more remarkable. The, it's a story of resilience and forgiveness and courage and passion. and um, I just hope that you'll see his movie coming out in December. And just Unbroken is just you know you're going to go through obstacles in life. You're going to have um, people hurt you, and you're going to have things where you think you're on the brink of death. and um, just you're you have to be pre- prepared. He was prepared for as much as he could be for everything he endured, and um, I'm just so inspired by Louis Zamperini.
0: Yeah, you know, incredible, incredible person. And uh, so, the the movie is actually coming out in December. I didn't know that.
1: Yeah, Angelina Jolie is the director, and Louis actually died about a month ago. I know, 96.
0: I know, well, that's amazing. He lived in '96 when you read that book and you go, What? Yeah. Um, it just is fascinating, but there you go. The, the, the courage and the strength and really amazing. And I'm glad you mentioned that. Now, any take on, have you read The Boys in the Boat? I, I'm actually hearing more and more about it. I'm not too familiar with it myself, but I'm curious on your reaction to that book.
1: You should totally read The Boys in the Boat. And yes, I've read it and it's an incredible story. And it's an incredible story about teamwork and just blue collar work ethic. I mean, these are, these are, boys young men who didn't have a whole lot except for a really 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 hard life and they came together to do something beautiful and they had an amazing coach who just believed in them and then the man who made the boats it's really an extraordinary story about not just sport but just about mind body spirit and everything that goes into magic that can happen when you all come together for a singular purpose
0: that's great Definitely going to check that out. I've heard so many good things about it. Uh, charity or foundation that you'd like to acknowledge or one that you support?
1: Most recently, I've uh, been I've been supporting the Achilles International Kayak Team. Okay. And they're based out of Norwalk, Connecticut, and they offer paddling opportunities for persons with disabilities, civilians, and military veterans. And there is a man named Gary Williams who – is the founder of the Achilles International Kayak Team. Achilles International is a national nonprofit, and there's this is a particular sport for kayak, and they do ocean kayaking and now outrigger. And he's just an, a very inspiring person, and he's all about equality. And he's running a race in called the Lighthouse. The Lighthouse in Norwalk in September, and it's there's a surf ski or ocean surf ski event, and there's rowing, and it's a 14-mile ocean race, and I'm working with him for equal prize money for women and men, whereas previously women got about 30% of the payout.
0: Good for you. No, it's good for both you, actually. That's great. That's great. And how do we get in touch with you, Pam, and follow you? I know you have a blog, and you're, you're very active here, so please share.
1: We have a website, womencanintl, abbreviated, for international.com, you can find us easily on Facebook for at Vote Yes for Women's Canoe, C1 and C2. And I'm on Facebook as well. I'm on Twitter at uh, with the hashtag um, or whatever you call it, Twitter <laughs> <laughs> of Women Can, I-N-T-L. So, um, you can pretty much reach, reach me easily through the website, womencaninternational.com.
0: Great. Well, I will be following you in the progress and I think this is fantastic. Everything you're doing and it's through your hard work, your determination. And again, just building the story up to where we are today. There's a common theme, which is, and you said it, it's grit. And it's just working hard and continuing to push yourself to be better. So I really do congratulate you and give you a huge round of applause on my end for everything you're doing, Pam. And I wish you uh, all the best as you continue.
1: Thank you. I really appreciate your support and in, in you being uh, willing to Keep us in conversation to help spread the word
0: you got it well that's our job we will do that and that's the life lessons of sports so listen keep it up Uh, i probably have already seen you on the potomac being from the dc area i just haven't recognized you but i'm sure i'll see you out there at some point again as a drive back and forth but i uh, hope to meet you one day soon in dc and and listen you have a great great weekend
1: thank you you too until next time who are you nation